As we've gone through this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, we've often referred to verses 14 and 15. And the reason for that is is because it's a very good summary of why this letter was written. Paul was hoping to come to Ephesus. In fact, he was hoping to come soon. But in case he was delayed, he wrote some instructions, things that he felt were of great importance related to how people should conduct themselves in the household of God. In other words, what he was writing was to give some basic instructions related to church life and the structure of the church. Um, we know the context. If you remember, we looked at the, uh, the need for elders, qualified elders and deacons. So that was part of the structure. But the bigger context, of course, is just that Paul was seeking to get this uh, uh, church established on the foundational things of love from a pure heart and a sincere conscience and a good faith. So we want to read this section here and uh, ask God to teach us from it. So if you're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 14, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, <clears throat> beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So things vital to the proper functioning of the church. And when he talks about the church, he actually uses four words to describe what I think are four foundational aspects of the church. First, he calls it a household. You see that in verse 15? I write that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So it's a household. It's a special household. It's a household of God, God's family. A gathering together of God's adopted children who are now brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we have here this morning. If you're a Christian, you're part of the household of God, a family, brothers and sisters in God's family. You see this family concept brought out over and over in the scriptures, but I just want to point out one place in Timothy where Paul, <clears throat> here in 1 Timothy, where Paul points Timothy to just that understanding as he's dealing with the people there in Ephesus. If you turn, turn to chapter 5, verse 1, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father to younger men as brothers, to older women as mothers, and to younger women as sisters in all purity. So you have that family aspect, that household uh, aspect of the church. So that's the first um, foundational understanding of the church that Paul was bringing forth here. Next, he uses the, word, the term church, church of the living God, 
which is a Greek word. I mean, in the Greek, that word is ekklesia. I'm not sure if I'm saying it exactly correctly. That's the, the Greek word for church, ekklesia. And it means a company of people who are called out, the called out ones. They've been called out by God. They've been called out to God. And they've been called out for God. If you're a Christian, you've been called out from sin. You've been called out from the world. You've been called out from living for yourself to live for the living God. You're, the, you're part of the church, the ecclesia, the called out one of the living God. Think of that. I mean, what greater privilege could there be to be called out by God and for God? So, household, the ecclesia, and then he says that the church is a pillar, a pillar. See that again? In verse 15, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, this may have had some special significance there in Ephesus because this city, Ephesus, at that time was known far and wide for this temple of Artemis, the temple of Artemis, or Diana, in, in, as uh, sometimes called. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You know, like the pyramids, that's the only ones that's left today are the pyramids. But there were seven great architectural achievements back in, in that time. One of them was this temple of Artemis. Um, it's gone. There's some artists' renditions of it. If you look it up on the Internet, you'll see some pretty impressive pictures. It, was, it must have been an impressive place. I read one account where a man said, I've seen a number of the seven wonders of the ancient world speaking back at that time, but he said nothing compared to this temple. And one of the aspects of this temple was that it had 127 marble pillars, marble pillars, and some of them were covered with jewels and gold. So these were very impressive pillars. This was a huge place. I think it was seven or no, ten times as big as the Parthenon, if you've seen pictures of the Parthenon. Well, this was a huge place. So, uh, people would be very aware there in Ephesus of what a pillar was, because this place was known for its pillars. And, you know, we know a little about the uh, Ephesians, their devotion to this temple and uh, Artemis, because Paul was there and caused a big stir, and uh, the people were so riled up that for two hours, they were so upset by Paul's preaching, for two hours they were in the street shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, it'd take a, a little bit of a fanaticism to carry that on for two hours, but they did, and it took the town clerk to calm them down <clears throat> so they could even be reasoned with. They were crazy over this temple. Well... It seems that Paul's idea here on this bringing up the church being a pillar is not so much the idea of a, a thought of a support because he brings that up later. Unless he's, it could be that he's just saying the same thing twice here, pillar and support, but I'm going to take them as, as if they were two different aspects of the church. Um, I think what he's saying here 
is not so much a support, but a place of display, a place of display. Like when a statue of a famous person is set on top of a pillar. You put that bust of that person up there to display it. Well, he's saying the church is the pillar of the truth. Paul's saying that, that this is what the church should be doing. It should be making, making truth clearly seen in the world. Holding it up for all to see. The church is a pillar of truth in the midst of error and darkness. So, again, a, f a very important function of the church. The church is a household. The church is a group of the called out ones. The church is a pillar of the truth. And then he goes on and says it's a support of the truth, a pillar and support of the truth. A supporter buttress keeps a building intact and steady. The church supports and maintains the truth in the world that the world would gladly destroy and ignore. The church is a bulwark of truth among false teaching and error. We're a support of the truth. Now, of course, the truth supports us too, but what Paul's thinking about here is just that in the midst of all the error and confusion and darkness in the world, here's the church supporting the truth, holding up the truth. Yeah. <clears throat> um, you know, really Paul says that one of the reasons he wrote this letter had to do with confronting error. He said back in chapter 1, <clears throat> he said, I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia to remain in Ephesus, speaking to Timothy here, in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So error and deception were a, a big problem there. So he's, Paul's saying the church is a, to be a support of the truth, to buttress the truth. <clears throat> So the question then comes, what is the essence of this truth that the church is a pillar in support of? What's the real meat of it? Well, Paul answers that in the next verse. He says that this truth is centered mainly on the person and work of Christ. Christ is the scarlet cord that runs through all of Scripture. That's one a uh, little phrase that's been used about Christ in the Bible. He's the scarlet cord that runs from Genesis clear through Revelation. And he is the center of the Christian life, so it's not surprising that when he's talking about the church being the pillar and support of truth, he's thinking about Christ. Because Christ is the center of all the truth that we have. <clears throat> You know, when we think about the Old Testament now as Christians, one of the ways that uh, we understand the Old Testament is by just seeing Christ there over and over, all over the place. Yeah. All those types and shadows. So, 
Paul says that this is what the church is centered on. And then he does an amazing thing. He says, the common confession of the Christian church is that there's been a mystery revealed. And that mystery is salvation in Christ. He says, what the Bible is all about is salvation in Christ from beginning to end. Sinful human beings can only be made godly in Christ. And that was something hidden, you see. He saw by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. That was something hidden from the ages, but has now been revealed. Something humanity would not understand on its own just by the workings of unenlightened, their unenlightened reason. They wouldn't come up with this. It was a mystery. It was a, it was a secret. But it's been revealed. God's opened it up now. Paul said in Colossians that there's a great mystery that God has now manifested to his saints. What is that mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery of godliness is summed up in Christ. God's purpose always has been to have his people throughout the world, his people throughout the world, to be one with him through his Son. That's always been God's purpose, to have his people one with him through his Son. But that purpose was hidden. It was secret for generations until it was revealed in Christ. More and more you see it becoming clear in the Old Testament. And then, of course, the clear revelation comes when Christ himself comes into the world. But just to realize that God's purpose always has been to have his people be, be, be one with him through Christ. And I say this section is really amazing for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is, is that to present this basic truth of Christ, Paul apparently quotes a hymn, a hymn from the early church. This section, if you uh, have a, the scriptures that are set off like mine, you see it's, it's written different than the rest of the section there. <clears throat> and that's because it was either a saying, a well-known saying of the early church, or probably part of a hymn of the early church. So Paul chose to present some of these basic truths concerning Christ by quoting from one of the hymns of the early church. You might remember that last time I spoke, I mentioned a letter that Pliny, one of the uh, officials in the Roman government, wrote to the emperor Trajan. This was in the 112 AD and he was writing the emperor because he was wondering just what the right policy is to deal with these Christians. They, they had been captured. Christianity was outlawed and uh, being persecuted and he had a, a number of them in his custody and he was wondering what to do with them. Well, he interrogated them <clears throat> about some of their practices and in that letter he says this about the Christians. They maintain that their fault or error amounts to nothing more than this, 
that they are in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day, that would be Sunday, a certain fixed day before sunrise, and here's the part. Thank you. Meeting on a certain fixed day before sunrise and reciting a hymn to Christ as God. Think about that. That was the testimony of the Christians. We, ha- we, we recite a, a hymn to Christ as God. That's the center of Christianity. Right there. And that, that's a testimony from a secular government, Roman government official. That's what he had the Christians say they do. <clears throat> the church from its beginning has been composing and singing hymns to Christ. It's just the mark of the church. When we're looking at these next lines here, just remember that they were apparently part or a fragment of an early hymn. And I might just say this related to this concept of the church singing hymns to Christ. Probably if we heard this today, if we could somehow have had a recording of what they were singing, it may not have been the kind of melodies that we have. I mean, the church has all kinds of different tempos and and uh, melodies around the world. Even today, some of the some of the beats and and uh, ways that uh, hymns are sung are quite different. Charles has probably experienced some of that just in his travels to different places. But you know what? The content will be very similar. You can get all kinds of different rhythms, but the content is what matters the most, and that's what's going to be the same. Because it's going to be centered on the Christ of the Bible. Well, just another little side note here. Think of how Paul says in the book of Colossians, that Christians should let the word of Christ richly dwell within them with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He says this is one of the ways we teach and admonish one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. As we go through these truths about Christ, just consider, I just want you to be thinking about how much content there must have been in these early hymns. Christians were teaching one another with these hymns. And so Paul could just take a part of one of these hymns and use it as a way of saying, now this is part of the common confession of of the church. Great is the mystery of godliness. What's that all about? Well, I'll just tell you what that's about. I'll quote part of one of the hymns we sing. Well, it's obviously a hymn of adoration of Christ. And I think there are six things concerning Christ which were part of the common confession of the early church. Of course, there were probably more, but this was just the part that he picked out. Six things that were part of the common confession of the early church. The order does not seem to be exactly chronological, going from like the beginning of Christ's life here on earth to uh, onward, but but there's, it, it follows somewhat of a chronological order. And the first thing he mentioned 
is that Christ was revealed in the flesh. You see that? He was revealed in the flesh. Now this certainly is a great mystery. He says, great is the mystery of godliness. Well, this is a great mystery that Christ was revealed in the flesh. But it's, it's something that's been revealed. It's revealed to us, especially as Christians. We see him as the Christ. In fact, you know, if you're talking about something being really revealed, this is the greatest revelation. God with us. God coming in the flesh. The Word becomes flesh and dwelt among us. And it was something that needed to be strongly emphasized in this setting because of, and we've mentioned a little of this before, the teaching of the Gnostics, which was just beginning. It really took hold in the second and third century. But this was kind of a pre-Gnostic idea that that anything related to matter or the flesh was evil and, and bad. And so the Gnostics taught that uh, since uh, the Christian teaching was that Christ came in the flesh, it must be a wrong, that must not be the right teaching. That's a false teaching. That <clears throat> they emphasized the idea of matter being evil and therefore God could not, not take on human flesh. Now we'll go into that more next time. So I don't want to say too much about it, but I'm just saying that this, he starts out with this, not just because when we think of Christ, we think of the incarnation, but also because this was a big issue for the Ephesians. They, this false teaching was there that had to be countered. Well, again, the Son of God did become a true man. 100% God, 100% man. It's a mystery. It's been revealed. It's beyond our comprehension. But there it is. God's revealed it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Uh, we can see the Godhead. Veiled in flesh when we see Christ. The eternal Son of God taking on to himself human nature. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. I think Wesley wrote that. Our God, think of this, our God, infinite God, contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. It's a mystery. Yeah. It's been revealed, but it still it remains you know, beyond our comprehension what we're talking about. <clears throat> Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. The Creator becoming part of the creation. The Sovereign becoming a servant. As one writer put it, Christ uncrowned himself to crown us. He put off his robes, to put on our rags. He came down from heaven to keep us out of hell. He came from heaven to earth that he might send us from earth to heaven. We should never get over the wonder of the incarnation, the humiliation of Christ coming down, the incarnation, Christ coming in the flesh, God 
God with us. Yeah. See, great is the mystery of godliness. You, you wouldn't come up with this on your own, the mind of man. This is God. God telling us what he has done and doing it in history. Paul then says that Christ was vindicated in the spirit. You see that next phrase, vindicated in the spirit. This could mean a number of things. And I'll just try to give a brief, some brief thoughts here. Though the world hated him, though he was despised and forsaken by men, Though his enemies denied his claims, yet he was vindicated by the Spirit. Through the power of the Spirit, Christ proved to be, to be all that he claimed to be. He was anointed by the Spirit. He was kept sinless by the Spirit. He spoke by the Spirit. He performed miracles by the Spirit. He cast out demons by the Spirit. But most of all, he was raised from the dead by the Spirit of God. This was the great vindication. You can deny everything he said, but up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. Men took Jesus and crucified him as a weak and worthless criminal, but through the power of the Spirit, God raised him up. Men thought about him were demonstra demonstrated to be false. Though put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the Spirit. The resurrection was a great demonstration that he was who he said he was. He was vindicated by the Spirit. And what he did was inter introduce a whole new way of life, a whole new kind of life, a whole new realm of life to humanity. Life in the Spirit. See, great is the mystery of godliness. And then we're told that he was beheld. By angels. Throughout his life, angels were involved in his ministry. <clears throat> in fact, the work of Christ was so tremendous that it was something into which the angels longed to look. We're told the angels just continually wanted to look into what was going on in the life of Christ. We know that in the scriptures that angels were present at his birth. They were present at the temptation in the desert. They were present in his agony in the garden. They were present at his death. They were present at his resurrection. Angels. He was beheld by angels. And they were present at his ascension back to the Father. I, I think we can just say probably throughout his life he was beheld by angels. You know, they knew him as their glorious Lord from all eternity. Don't you think it was something of a amazement to him that he came to earth? Surely they watched in wonder at what he was doing for the redemption of mankind. I, I think even angels, no doubt, would say, Great is the mystery of godliness. What is God doing? So, he was then, it says, proclaimed among the nations. Proclaimed among the nations. 
to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. He was proclaimed as Savior of the world, proclaimed among the nations. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The resurrected Christ told his followers, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. The dividing wall between the Jew and Gentile was broken down and the Gentiles were fellow heirs of the grace of God. You know, for the early church, this was part of the great mystery of godliness. And for some of the Jewish believers, it, it was a major thing. Um, it took a work of the Holy Spirit for some of those Jewish believers to understand this, what God was doing here. For instance, with Peter, it took a revelation to, to Peter himself to show him that God was not one to show partiality. I mean, they, these Jews had a, a set idea. God works amongst, among us, condemns everybody else. And some of them, that, that went pretty hard, that idea. Uh, it did with Peter and took a special revelation. Let's just t- let's turn to Acts chapter 10 here real quick. <clears throat> Paul gave him, or God gave Peter this revelation that uh, no food is unclean, but he was doing that for a bigger purpose. He was trying to show him that these Gentiles could be brought into the kingdom of God just the same as any Jewish person could be. Well, anyway, Acts 10.35 says this. Well, I'll start with the uh, 34. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation... The man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And then if you turn over to verse uh, 45, there's some of the other Jewish believers uh, hearing some of this. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the Gentiles also. They were amazed because this was happening to the Gentiles. But you see, Christ was being proclaimed among the nations. It didn't matter who you were. You needed to hear the gospel. You needed to heed the gospel. So he was being proclaimed among the nations. Now, Paul got that right from the beginning. He knew that the gospel of Christ was to go to all, all people everywhere. God said of Paul in Acts 9.15, this was right at the time of his conversion, this is speaking about Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. So from the get-go with Paul, he knew this is going out to the Gentiles. <clears throat> in fact, Paul himself says in Colossians 1.23 that the gospel was proclaimed in all creation. The gospel was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So there's no limit to where the gospel should go. God desires all people everywhere that they should hear about this great mystery of godliness, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So then the fifth line of this hymn says that he was believed on in the world. Believed on in the world. Not only was the message proclaimed, it was believed. It's one thing to proclaim it, it's another to have people believe it. Well, uh, the hymn writer here and... and, uh, 
Paul quoting the hymn writer says, he believed on in the world. Men from various tribes and tongues and people and nations believed on Christ and began to worship him. This crucified Jewish man was embraced as Lord and Savior of mankind. Think about that. Insignificant little area of the, of the world. Now he's believed on in the world. From a world that rejected him and a handful of followers that denied him, or at least initially denied him, came a church that has expanded over the world like a spreading flame. It's the name of a book by F.F. F. Bruce, The Spreading Flame. Well, it's about the first 300 years of Christianity. That's what happened. It just spread out like a fire over the world at that time. It was believed on in, believed on in the world. Church history tells us that in one generation, that a generation of the initial apostles, the gospel went as far as east as India and as far as west as Spain, just spreading out. <clears throat> I like this quote. said, the gospel exploded on the old, tired world of the Roman Empire with tremendous energy. It exploded because it was dynamite, you know. The gospel exploded on the old, tired world of the Roman Empire with tremendous energy, shattering prejudice, creating faith, sweeping away tradition, and begetting a love-filled community of men and women who are willing to risk everything in bearing witness to the one who is more dear to them than life itself. That's, that's the way the gospel expands. You get people like that. Yeah. <laughs> Leonard Ravenhill put it like this, the initial little band of followers of Christ had about as much chance of surviving as, the ba as a baby at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. But through the power of the Spirit of God, the church not only survived, but it thrived. Christ was believed on in the world, you see. Even in the midst of Jewish rejection and Roman persecution, God's wind blows where it wills. Yeah. And it was blowing out over that the Roman Empire at that time, and then over the rest of the world. Again, you see, great is the mystery of godliness. How does God do this? He was believed on in the world. And then the last line that Paul quotes from this hymn says that Christ was taken up to glory. The hymn, this little portion of this hymn, began with the incarnation and humiliation of Christ, Christ coming down from heaven to be a servant, it ends with his ascension back to heaven. He was taken up to glory. He goes back as one to whom all authority has been given in heaven and earth. Remember, that's what he said right before he's taken back. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. He goes back as one who's won the victory. He's won the victory. Sin and death have been defeated. We're told in Acts chapter 1 that while the disciples were looking on, he was lifted up 
and a cloud received him out of their sight. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing, there's some of those beheld by angels, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. In other words, he's coming again. He's ascending. He ascended to heaven, and he's coming in the same way. So I think this last line should not just remind us of the Lord's ascension back to heaven and the fact that he right now is sitting at the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession for us. All these things, you know, come to mind just from a little phrase like this, taken up to glory. He's in heaven making intercession for us. He's sitting at the right hand of God until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. He will be in that position of authority until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet and he's going to come again. Can't you say with me, great is the mystery of godliness? Great is the mystery of godliness. These truths concerning Christ are part of the Christian's common confession. Wherever you find Bible-believing Christians, they'll hold to these truths. They were part of the hymns of the church back then. They've been part of the hymns of the church down through the centuries. And by the grace of God, there'll be yet more hymns that present this mystery of godliness, this exaltation of Christ as Lord and Savior. They're They're still being written. And perhaps, I think surely, God's redeemed people will be writing and singing hymns like this throughout eternity. I don't see any reason we'd stop. In fact, we have some of the, some of, them in, of those type of hymns in the book of Revelation already told us that's what's going on. So, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And our hymns should reflect that and do reflect that. So I thought we could close with one of, one of those hymns. Uh, this would be 142 in the Redemption. It's called One Day. Living he loved me, dying he saved me. Buried he carried my sins far away.